you know, like me, maybe you woke up a couple of mornings ago um, dismayed, horrified at what you were seeing on TV. The death um, of George Lloyd, the subsequent exploding racial tensions that quickly devolved into protests and riots and, and violence. And there's much that we can say as believers and should say. But one of the most important things I think that we can do as the people of God in a time like this is to lament. Now the scriptures talk about lamenting as that process of what happens when the people of God come before God, crying out to God, asking God to fix what is wrong, mourning over sin, weeping for all that's been lost, asking for God to show up, to move in the hearts of his people, to to work, to bring change and repentance and healing and restoration. But oftentimes, that's not our impulse, is it? Because to lament means that we have to feel. And when we feel, then we start to think. And when we think, we might actually have to do something versus going on in our lives. But one of the things that God's impressed upon me this season, do you realize that one-third of all of the Psalms, one-third, over 50, are songs and prayers of lament. That it's always been a part of the rhythm of God's people to come to him, to look at what's going on around us and say, God, this is not the way things are supposed to be. We need your help. So we're going to spend a few minutes this morning, this morning lamenting together. And as we think about what we're lamenting, here are a few things that I want you to unite your hearts with as we come before the Lord this morning. One, we do want to lament the loss of life of George Lloyd, the heartache and the pain of his family. Can you imagine? We want to lament the reality of racism like yeast and dough. It can easily creep into every crevice of our culture and society and us not even be aware of it. We want to lament with our brothers and sisters in Christ of color who are walking through this, who feel this in a unique way, both within the church and outside this church. We have folks here who are part of interracial families and marriages and homes, and we want to come alongside of them. We want to lament the pain that racism as a whole has wedded into our culture and to unite our hearts as fellow human beings, as image bearers with those who are protesting, those who are hurting. We do want to lament the breach of trust that's been introduced between people and those whom God has called to protect us, to govern us, to rule over us. That's a thing to lament. We want to lament the fact that these protests have been hijacked by those who are exploiting them for their own personal gain. We want to lament the fact that there are small business owners, families, businesses whose lives are literally going up in smoke. We lament that these events cast aversions on the vast majority of our law-abiding servants, law enforcement personnel, many who go to this church, 
who were full of integrity and full of character, we lament how this lands on them because they serve so honorably and faithfully. You know, racism is a sin. Violence is a sin. Murder is a sin. Theft is a sin. Destruction of property is a sin. And because all of these things are sin, we, at their root, we know fundamentally there is only one permanent, lasting solution to all of these things. And it's Jesus. It is the gospel. The gospel, the cross, and only the gospel and the cross can change hearts, can change lives, can, can lead people to put aside grievances, can lead people to offer forgiveness and grace, can lead people to love and reconcile through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do just for a few minutes this morning, for Oaks, as we continue to worship, is we want to lament. We want to bring these things to the Lord. So often we're, our initial impulse is, what do we do? we got to do something, post something, say something. And there's a time and a place for all of those things. But God says, seek me in my face people of God. So let's do that together right now. I'm going to pray for us this morning, Four Oaks. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads to join me in that place and ask God to unite your heart to his. Lord, we come before you this morning and we cry out as the saints have all cried out over the history of the church. How long? Lord, how long that this world will be in turmoil that lives and families and institutions will be wreaked by the havoc of sin. Lord, please come. Please save us. Please intervene. Please do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, we're, we're freely confessing we cannot fix this. Lord, this, the solution lies outside of us. Only you can do that kind of miraculous intervening work through Jesus. So, Father, we pray that this would be a season where, once again, there will be the opportunity for people to turn their hearts and minds to you. But we pray for the families that are directly impacted by racist events, as we've seen on TV. The heartache, the pain, the loss of life. Lord, we want to pray for... Um, those who are innocently kind of caught up in this wave and are seeing their own homes and businesses going up and smoke. Lord, we pray for our law enforcement who are courageously, those who are law-abiding, courageously fighting for justice and truth and keeping law and order you've given them to us. We thank you for them. Lord, we pray for our leaders. Oh, Lord, give them divine wisdom from above. Lord, help them to seek your heart, to seek your face. And Lord, we pray for us as a people, as a church, where we know that judgment, discipline begins in the household of God. And so we want to heed your words in Amos 5 when you tell us, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But, but, People of God, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Lord, that's what we're praying this morning. 
Lord, come quickly. Help us. Help us, Lord. Bring healing to this land. Bring healing to hearts and lives. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I guess all I can say for Oaks is welcome home. Glad to be here. <laughs> Pastor Paul, for those of you who don't know me, it's on behalf of the staff, the pastors, the elders. So glad you're here. Also for those who are continuing to tune in online through our live stream. Because it's hard to believe it's been 10 weeks since we have last been together. It seems like 10 years to me. And one thing we just want to say right off the top, because we want to keep it real here at Four Oaks, is the Christian community is not as unified now as we may have been 10 weeks ago. And when I say the Christian community, I don't mean just merely here. I'm, I'm talking even broader than that, but certainly not less than here. Because much has emerged this season that, let's just be honest, we're not all in agreement about, right? So we're not all in agreement about regathering. You know, some of you who are out here right now, you've been lining up outside for the last 10 weeks, like it was Star Wars or something, right? You were like, what has taken you guys so long? Y'all have been so unbiblical for not gathering. There's people online right now who think all of us have what? Lost our minds, right? There's people who disagree about COVID and the economy. We're, we're, the cure is worse than the disease, one side says. The other says, no, no, we're, we're sacrificing lives on the altar of the American dollar. Now, certainly one of the things that we're also disagreeing about is masks. Let's just be right up front with that. Okay? We are totally disagreeing about masks. And whether you love them, hate them, wearing them or not wearing them, you're looking at the person who's doing the opposite and you're totally judging them. Okay? I mean, let's, let's, let's keep it real here. We're in disagreement about government and politics, right? Stimulus money and the payroll protection plan and fault lines and blue state and red state and who's at fault and who's to blame and all those things just sort of press into us. And, but here's what can happen, church. And here, here's, here's what seasons like this can, how they can deceive us. You see, we look at things from a human level and we think that the disagreements that we have are, are so profound that you and I actually have more in common with the person who looks like us, votes like us, lives near us, has the same social status in us, but who isn't a Christian than we do with those who don't look like us, don't live where we live, don't share our same political views, but is a Christian. And let me just say, folks, that's a deception. That's a fatal error, and that can be the root of much disunity. I want to remind us what Paul tells us this morning, and he's directing this to us as the body of Christ from Ephesians 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Unity doesn't mean that we don't have disagreements. Unity doesn't mean that we don't have differing convictions. Unity, rather, is how gospel-saturated Christians who are committed to the Orthodox faith love and treat one another that we do disagree with. 
and how we live that out in this world. And that is Peter's chief concern for us as we're looking at First Peter 2 this morning. This is super important for Peter because he says, Christian, as you're working all this out, the world is watching. The gospel is at stake. The mission of the church is at stake. While you're doing your little inner bubble, intramural squabble sort of thing, there's a world that's dying out here. And he commands us to keep our lives honorable. And that's where we're going this morning. So we got three points, okay? And let me just give you the heads up. This is the alliteration you came here for. So here we go. Our principal directive, our personal devotion, oops, see what happens, and our public disposition. I am so out of practice up here. Now, actually, that used to happen all the time when I was just on TV. You just never saw it, right? Our principal directive, our personal devotion, our public disposition. That's where we're going, but let's pray. We need the Lord's help. Father, it's strange to be back. It's strange, but it's good. Because this is where you've created us to be, with your people, worshiping you. And so, Father, I'm asking for your help. I'm asking that you would speak in and through these words to penetrate the hearts of your people this morning. We want to live honorable lives that glorify you, that are compelling to the world around us. And so we're asking for you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one, our principal directive. And so if you want to find the central verse in this passage, the hinge upon which everything else orients, the the center part of the argument of Peter, his thesis, look at verse 12. Let's read it again. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, in case you needed a reminder, this is not a suggestion from Peter. This is not a helpful hint. Husbands, this isn't a nudge from your wife. Okay, This is an urgent command. This is a directive from God. It's an imperative. Keep your conduct honorable, Peter tells us. Now, that word honorable, it's very interesting. I don't know what you think about when you think about the word honor, maybe integrity, character, things that are internal. But that's not the nature of this term. The nature of this term, honorable, it literally means to be beautiful on the outward form, on the outward side. It, it, it points to extrinsic beauty, something that's pleasant to the eyes, something that is beautiful to behold. In other words, the idea is that the church is getting dressed up to go out on the town, and it's putting on its best clothes. So it's kind of like men on your anniversary when you take your wife to that swank Italian steakhouse downtown. You better not be showing up in your T-shirt and bathing suits, okay? Now, there's one or two of you in here I know would try to pull that off, okay? I won't mention you by name from the pulpit. But may it never be, right? May it never be. You get decked out. You get your best on. What are the church's clothes? What are the church's best, so to speak, Peter would tell us? Works and good deeds, he tells us. You see, Peter's pointing us to a connection point between us and the world. And let's be honest, sometimes the Christian community, the 
the, the church, it can seem miles, it can seem an eternity away from the values of the world and our culture. But Peter says, actually, we have a very common connection point. It's called the image of God. It's called common humanity. And because of that common humanity, that common image of God, there are some acts of mercy, of good works in this world, Peter tells us, that will be universally acknowledged no matter where we're coming from. So when the Christian community or when your family sends workers to the front lines to do COVID medical care, the world looks at that and says, yes. When, when you join your neighbors, as many are doing this morning in these cities that have been ravaged across the country, and they're helping to clean up their own communities, destroyed by people who don't even live in those communities, the world says, yes. When we participate in Second Harvest and help bring meals to our community, the world says, that's right. That's what we should be doing. Now understand something here. Peter says that God has a grand goal. And it's a bigger goal than simply helping people, although it's not less than that. This grand goal, look back at verse 12, the key is so that, in other words, conduct yourselves among the Gentiles honorably so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now what does that mean on the day of visitation? Because in the Bible, whenever that word visitation is used related to God, one of two things is always happening. God is, when he visits a place, he's not coming to hang out, right? He's coming with a purpose. And in the Bible, one of two things is happening. Either he's bringing judgment as he's visiting someplace, or he's bringing mercy and he's bringing grace. And oftentimes, he's doing both at the same time. So back 10 years ago when we were all meeting in here going through Genesis, remember that? Remember that long time ago? And we were walking through the story of Abraham and Sarah when God visited Abraham, remember? And what did God tell Abraham? You're going to have a son. Now Sarah laughed and all those sorts of things, but this visitation from God was to bring mercy, was to bring grace. But what happened after dinner when the boys went outside to get a smoke? What happened? They looked out over the plain and God says, Abraham... I'm going to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to bring judgment and fire and brimstone. See, the day of visitation was both and. Now, here's something I learned just in my study this week. In the New Testament, without exception, every time it talks about God visiting someone, some person here on earth, it's always in relationship to mercy without exception. Just an example from Luke. What did Jesus tell Zacchaeus? He said, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, today salvation has what? Come to this house. Literally means it has visited this house. I'm showing up, Zacchaeus, to bring you mercy and grace and salvation. So do you see what Peter is saying here? See, when he talks about the day of visitation for the world, he's not talking about the day of judgment, although he talks about it in other places, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is that as the church commits itself to a righteous, holy, 
honorable life, when it puts on its best, Peter says the world is watching. And as the world is watching, somehow, in God's strange providence and grace, and we don't know exactly how this works, God visits the world. God uses the holy lies of his people to draw others to himself. Now, think back to your own testimony if you're a believer this morning. Maybe there was something in that that Peter talks about for you. Maybe it was something different, something distinctive about the person who you got to know. Some, something they were doing that was extraordinary. You may have just kind of just not got the whole Jesus thing, but you certainly understood their heart of compassion and what they were doing. Peter says, this is the way of it, church. Now, I do think this is why Peter reintroduces this word exiles to us. See, back in verse 11, sojourners, exiles, in other words, strangers or visitors, right? Now, a phenomenon of human nature is that when we, when someone new shows up, so kids, remember when you were back in school, that seems like five years ago for your parents, remember that? And, and when some new kid comes into your class, what does everybody do? They look at him or her. They watch him. They observe. It's just it's human nature, right? I remember when Susan and I were first married, we went to a wedding in Union City, Tennessee, or as they say there, Union City. Okay, that's the only time I'm going to do that, this, this sermon. And I remember I showed up at this little podunk diner on the side of the road, and my bill was $8, and I whipped out my credit card to pay for that bill. You might as well have thought that my first name was Corona and my last name was Virus, right? I stood out. They thought, they, they were like, we've got a live one on the wire here. This guy is not from these parts, right? Because the restaurant had its eye on me. Well, see, this is what Peter is saying. The world has its eyes on us, on our conduct. Now, here's the paradox, and this is what's hard about this. It would just be awesome, wouldn't it, if we could say, you know, the world is always just going to, like, really get excited about what we're doing. It's going to see our good works, and they're going to, like, tell me more about Jesus. And Peter says, it's not always going to work that way. See, the same works that bring favor will also bring opposition guaranteed. And oftentimes at the same time. Look back at the text in verse 12. So that when, not if, not if, church, but when they speak against you as evildoers. I was reminded of this and how both of these things kind of work together. They were interviewing a, a New York City council person on the tail end of the crisis of the COVID experience there. And they were saying, you know, we, we really appreciate Samaritan's Purse. Samaritan's Purse is a, is a nonprofit Christian organization founded by Franklin Graham that seeks to feed and clothe and do the things that Peter's talking about. And he was like, now, Samaritan's Purse, he was like, now, this is his backhand compliment, we weren't going to reject their help. That's what he said. <laughs> We're not going to reject their help. We're thankful for it. But now that they've given it, guess what? We want them to leave because their theology and their stance on a whole host of social and sexual issues doesn't align with ours. But you know what? Don't be surprised. Just be obedient. 
See, our job, Peter says, is to adorn ourselves. Our job is to put our best on as it relates to good works and service and mercy and just leave the rest to God. And and church, don't gauge your effectiveness by how the world responds. Don't do that. You're just doing what God has called you to do. Pray as you're doing it that God would visit them. Church, that's a promise from God. So that's our, that's our principal decree here. That's our directive. Now, let's talk about our personal devotion number two. In other words, how do we need to orient ourselves internally to be most effective in this mission? Go back to verse 11. He says, I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, one of the questions we have to ask here is what's the connection with being exiles, okay, strangers, visitors to this life, and then abstaining from passions of the flesh? And I think just a, a simple illustration will help, help us understand what the connection is here. The way you behave, the way I behave, when we go on a trip to visit somewhere versus permanently moving, our behavior is radically different, right? They're not the same. So I remember last November, Susan and I had did a ministry trip up to, to Indiana in the middle of November. You know, middle of November, that's like, that's like tank top season here, right? So we get up there, and I kid you not, there was a snowstorm. There was a blizzard. When I say there was a blizzard, that's pastoral exaggeration. But for Florida people, it was a blizzard, right? It was enough where we were like going to the Goodwill and get us some clothes immediately. We had to make sure our rental car had something called four-wheel drive and snow tires. Can you imagine what this is? I had to find an ice scraper. I haven't touched an ice scraper in 30 years since we lived in Tennessee, right? And God bless everybody who lives in cold weather or who's from a place with cold weather, but it was absolutely miserable. So glad to get back to the sunshine state. But the question is, why didn't we just buy an SUV with snow tires? Why don't we just like plop down 5,000 of change and get a whole nude winter wardrobe? Well, the answer is obvious, right? Because we're just visiting. We're just, we're just passing through. But do you see the spiritual parallel that Peter's making here? See, God's people will always be tempted in this life to set up shop as if this is our, pers- this is our permanent destination. We, we, we will always be tempted, even though there's seasons like this that remind us it's not true, we're always tempted, we're easily forgetting that, that our time here is like a mist, It is like a vapor. It is here today, gone tomorrow. And so what Peter is wanting us to do, he's wanting us to reconnect in our hearts this morning with our identity as sojourners, strangers, exiles, because guess what? That's what's happening internally is going to dramatically transform the way that we're engaging our own souls, which will in turn impact the way we're engaging others. See, Peter says we are to no longer be driven by the passions of the flesh. Now, that word literally means uncurbed human impulse. 
Now, when we think of uncurbed human impulse, we may think that Peter is referring exclusively here to sexual immorality, but that's not true. Certainly that's included, but do you realize that lust is simply one of many fleshly passions that we have to fight in this life? There are many others, such as anger, fear, anxiety, vindictiveness, pride, ambition. And Peter is telling us that all of these things are waging war against our soul. And that's a military term. The idea is that this is not a skirmish or a small battle. The idea is that there is a whole host, a horde of military personnel, forces amassed, full frontal assault, coming after your soul coming after your heart. It is the source of all of our spiritual conflict. And here's what Peter says. He says, abstain. Now that word literally means to distance, to be on guard, to put, to put some space between us and that. You know, for us as Christians, we have to ask, what are those things those passions of the flesh, those things that are stripped out of their biblical context that have human sin and self-centeredness and orientation, where are, what are those things for you in your life? What are those things for me? Because Peter says, wage war against those, not simply for your soul's sake, although that, but also for the sake of witness. You know, this is a season, and I mentioned something about this a few weeks ago, where Christians are talking a lot. And do you know what I mean by talking a lot? I mean they're posting a lot, right? They're, they're, they're talking, they're posting to each other, about each other, about a million different things. And sometimes you can detect in that, what? An unbridled human impulse. It's people working out their fear and their anger and their anxiety and their pride and their ambition. And it's almost like we have, a, we have this, mistaken ident- this mistaken notion that the gospel doesn't apply to this area. Like, well, how I live my life out here with people, that's, the gospel applies to that. But who I am behind my screen, the gospel doesn't apply. I, I call it the, the red light effect. You may, you've heard me mention this before. Have you noticed this uncanny thing when people are at a red light? They know intellectually that the whole world can see them, right, through their window. But they behave as if we can't see them, right? It's really strange. They pick their nose. They scratch themselves in strange places. They floss their teeth. That's, that's a, that's a no-go right there, okay? Flossing the teeth at the red light. They forget where they are, and, and, and if we're not careful, because of our unbridled passions for oaks, we forget who we are. We forget where we are. We forget why we're here. Do you know that what you say about Christians to other Christians is a spiritual act of worship? Do you know what you and I say about people out there? about our leaders, about our communities, about our cities is a spiritual act of worship. 
I wonder, and, and here I've I'm, I'm got this finger pointed right back at myself. I wonder proportionally how much time we've spent debating gloves, masks, and politics and impugning each other's motives versus sharing the gospel. I wonder. I wonder if this is not an area where the church, capital C, needs to say, God, break our hearts in this place. There, there is a world that's dying out there. There is a world literally and figuratively on fire. And you've called to adorn ourselves with good works. And when they see all these intramural battles, they're just like, I can get that out here, right? Nothing new, nothing worthy, nothing honorable about this. And what Peter wants us to know is that our interior life is crucial for fueling our external behavior, and that's going to be our last point that we're going to be done, our public disposition. Let's look at verse 13. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That word be subject to means to submit yourself to, to subordinate to arrange, to come under. Now, when you think about what Peter is saying here, this is, this is pretty stunning, okay? He's saying, submit yourself to the emperor and the governor in the original context. Who, who is he talking about? Who was the governor that Peter probably spent the most time with and under? Pontius Pilate. He was the man who washed his hands literally of the crucifixion of an innocent man. Who was the emperor at this time? Caesar? Well, it was Nero. And Nero, by this point, was the absolute arch enemy of the church. In fact, and it's hard to know how much Peter knew and he didn't know, Peter is calling the people there to submit to the very man who's going to crucify him. So, so Peter is not in some ivory tower writing these things. And so we, we, we can imagine Peter saying, you know, absent worshiping Caesar and calling him God, that, that was the one no-go, right? That was the one no-go. Be like someone asking you to deny Christ. There, there, there's a fundamental issue of submission where your submission to the Lord subverts any submission to a human authority. But we can imagine, Peter, other than worshiping Caesar, you know what? Obey the laws. Pay your taxes. Don't slander your leaders or your fellow citizens. Live peaceful lives. You know, one of the things that, this wasn't in the notes originally, but I just would want to encourage us towards. Whenever you have that impulse to push back, strike out, make your stance, stake your claim, have a take, all those things that we as Americans say are our fundamental rights. I can have my opinions, I can have my perspectives, I can do what I want to do, I can say what I want to say to whom I want to say it. Before, before you go down that road, just pray. Pray for that person. Pray for that leader. Pray for that situation. Pray for that 
institution, pray, whatever is causing that internal passion of the flesh, just pray. Now, understand something. This does not resolve all the questions I'm sure that come up in your mind at a time like this. This is absolutely complex, right? This takes great wisdom and nuance. How, how, how do we discern when it's right to resist the police who are arresting, or, or arresting us and when it's, when it's wrong to resist? When we must submit, that, 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 that's a nuanced question. It's full of complexities. But it starts with a fundamental posture, right? That it's not merely about me. What I'm doing right now, how I'm adorning myself, it has implications for the world. The world is watching. And Peter introduces a principle here to help us in this. And it's a, it's a, it's a tough principle, but it's a great principle. Look at verse 16. Peter says, this is how you're to do this, Christian, out in the world. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, we love freedom as Americans, right? Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Who said that? Jenna Shoplin. So, so we love freedom. We love our rights. We love all of those things that come with being an American. But Peter says, if you want to be free, if you want to be really free, then be the slave of God. That's, that's the term here. Servants of God, slaves of God, a doulos. Ray Ortland says this. He says, one way to change the world is the approach that says... I will make you suffer until things change. Don't we do that in personal relationships? I'm going to make you suffer and feel it until you change. The other says, I will endure suffering until things change. The first seems obvious, and the second seems crazy, except that God is in it. Jesus proved that. You may say, Pastor Paul, this is crazy talk. This makes no human sense. And you know what? You're absolutely right. That's why Paul said the gospel is foolishness to perishing men. But to us, the beloved, the friends of God, it is the very salvation of our souls. You see, we have to ask, where in the world did Peter learn this? And remember, this is St. Peter. Call down the fire, Jesus. Set up the tent on the mountaintop, Jesus. Make me the greatest, Jesus. Here we have Jesus. Peter saying, I willingly give all of this away and submit myself to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Where did Peter learn that, I wonder? Of course, you know the answer is Jesus. See, he saw Jesus not cling to equality with God as something to be held onto, but gave himself up, made himself obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus, Peter had sat at the feet of Jesus, and he had learned his lesson well. If you want to make an impact in this life, if you want to adorn yourself with the good deeds of the gospel, Peter says, then you have to realize it's not about yourself. It's not about your rights. We willingly give these things up for the sake of our brothers and the sake of a dying world. Edmund Clowney says this, and we're almost done. Knowing who he was and what he came to do, Jesus could subject himself to people. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
One of the lessons of the church this season, I think, is just because we can say something, just because we do, we, we should, we, just because we can say something or do something doesn't mean we should. Sometimes it's just better to submit ourselves, to entrust ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to let that one go. I'm not going to respond to that. I'm not going to make my perspective here known. I'm, I'm, I'm going to willingly follow your path. I'm going to speak with my life. I'm going to let it adorn my behavior so that my behavior is honorable because, God, there is a dying world here. And the gospel is at stake. There's a lot at stake this season, Four Oaks. But what an opportunity we have through service, submission, self-sacrifice. That may God adorn his church with good deeds. And may his grace visit our needy land. Let's pray.